want to talk with you this morning about identity and wholeness, our identity in Christ and how that can lead to wholeness. And so I want to talk a lot about our God concept, something I call our God concept. So our God concept is what we believe about the nature of God, what we believe about who he is, what he's like, and maybe more importantly, how he responds to us and how he responds to the world around us. All of us have a God concept. I would say everybody in the world has some kind of a God, maybe their God concept is he's not there, you know. Um, and I would say even that concept affects their life. And what we believe about who God is has a large effect on what we believe about ourselves, Amen. our identity in Christ. And what we believe about ourselves has a lot to do with how we feel about ourselves and the feelings that we're going to experience day by day, you know, feelings of joy, peace, rest, cared for, encouraged, or condemned, rejected, depressed, you know, struggling. You know, these are all feelings that come up uh, as we face different situations in our lives. And so much of this is driven by our self-identity. That's largely driven by our God concept. Follow me so far? Okay, so I'll give you an example. In 1986, I was 21 years old, and that's when I joined Beaches Chapel. In those days, the platform was actually over against that back wall, and I was sitting in the back over somewhere in this direction. And the pastor of that time tells this story. I'd been at Beaches Chapel maybe a few months or something like that. And he starts telling this story one Sunday morning. And he said, um, there's this kid, this eighth grader, who failed his final exam in his English class. And the teacher called the parents and let them know that he had failed this exam. And so he comes home from school that day, and there's a note on the front door from the parents that said, you failed your exam, and we have moved away. We're not going to tell you where we moved. You can't live with us anymore. You failed your English test. And I'm hearing this story and I'm thinking, that's ridiculous, you know. No parents would do that. That's crazy. Like, what kind of story is this? And then Steve was the pastor. Steve drops the bomb and he says, and how much less would our heavenly father abandon us just because we make some kind of a mistake? Right? So good story, right? So I'm sitting there and I'm hearing that, but here's the thoughts that are going on in my head. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Like, yes, I can buy into no parent or, or almost no parent would ever do that. But you know, if you mess up and, and you mess up several times or you mess up really good, yeah, I think God may just, you know, he's done. He just abandons us and we're on our own and we got to figure it out or like find some deep repentance of some kind, you know, to even have a hope of getting back into his good graces. And what's interesting to me as I look back on that is thinking, why was I like that? Where did that come from? So I wasn't raised in church. I didn't grow up, you know, hearing all kinds of sermons and stuff. 
And so it wasn't because of like doctrine that I'd heard growing up about who God is and what he does, you know. I didn't grow up in like a hellfire and brimstone type of a church. This was just in me. This thought about who God was, like, yeah, you make a mistake, that's it, man. He'll just, you know, he doesn't strive with man forever. And I just thought that. I just felt that. And it came out of my concept of what is fatherhood. What is fatherhood like? What does fatherhood look like? Uh, I viewed fathers as harsh. I viewed fathers as impatient, oftentimes angry. You can easily make a mistake and they go off on you. And something in me had just kind of naturally transferred that over to God the Father. Like, he's a father. That's what fathers are like. That's the kind of stuff that they do. And that just came out of me. In Romans 8.15, let's consider what the Bible says for a second. Romans 8.15, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. So this is a huge, huge verse. When we know we're loved, when we can receive it at a heart level, right? Not just cognitively know it, but we can, we can feel secure enough to open our hearts and let love in. That's a big deal, right? A lot of people know about love, but love implies risk. Because if I open my heart, I might get hurt. So I have to feel safe enough, right? And, and let God's love in, and that opens my heart, and it frees me from fear, and I don't live like a slave, that's good stuff, right? When I can live in this heart-opened way where I can receive and give love, something deep inside of me will cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. There, there's a real relationship that's taking place with the Father when I, can, when I can receive that. And yet many Christians live in an identity crisis, right? There, there's... Certain things that have broken down in their understanding of who they are as a child of God, what their identity is as a child of Christ. Just like the example I just gave you. Yeah, you make a mistake, he's gone. And so, you know, it's common for Christians, even Christians who have been around a long time, to battle fears of rejection. I battled a lot of that for many, many years fears uh, of social situations. Uh, There was a long, long time where if I came to church on Sunday morning or I went to a home group or I was around some group of people, I would battle feelings of inferiority. I would think, you know, other people are more popular, you know, and maybe or maybe not they'll reject me and my feelings would go up and down, you know, based on that and how I felt about that. I went for a while where I could hardly look at Facebook because I'd look down through the Facebook posts and get triggered. You ever get triggered on Facebook? (laughs) Lots of people at some level, you know, have these social anxieties and fears of rejection. Uh, A lot of people fear that their needs won't be met. You know, their their physical needs, material needs, emotional needs um, can cause us to struggle with a victim mentality or try to be overly dominant in our lives. Um, And definitely a lot of Christians 
have a fear of the future. I think that's a test that we're going through right now because there's a lot of changes happening in the world that are different, that we're not used to, that we don't know about, and how do we respond to that? And that can definitely create a lot of fears of the future. And am I going to be okay? And what's it going to be like, you know, several years from now or for my kids or that kind of thing? But here's the thing. These issues flow from our identity in Christ. When we really know who we are in Christ, it it brings a healing to these kinds of fears. In 1 John 4.18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. So this is a huge verse. If you look up the word perfect in the Greek, it means complete or mature, which to me puts a, a very good light on this verse, right? His love has been completed in me or matured in me. Remember, I was saying a few minutes ago, it's one thing to have this cognitive belief, yeah, God's love. It's another thing to be able to open my heart and receive it in the midst of the fire, you know, in the midst of the trial or, or, or so forth. And so here's the thing. Any area in my life where I have fear, in that area, God's love has not yet been made complete. Make sense? It has not yet matured on the inside of me. And it's very, very possible to have some areas where we're very confident in God's love toward us, but other areas in our life where that's still a process of that love maturing on the inside of us. So... I went through that process for a long, long time. I mean, at some level, we're going through it for the rest of our lives, right? Um, But going through it in a way, you know, that just involved a lot of pain, because when we have a very faulty identity of who we are in Christ, it leads to pain. It leads to all the fears I was just talking about. And I don't want to be hurt because feeling rejection, feeling shame, feeling fear and embarrassment. These things are very painful, emotionally painful, right? And so what do we do? We put walls up, walls of protection up around our hearts because you've got to get through the day somehow, right? You've got to get through that social situation somehow or your job situation or even sometimes at home with your family, you know? We've seen uh, TV shows, movies, or even people we know where the husband and wife just constantly bicker and there's sarcastic remarks and there's little jabs at each other and there's almost never this, this kind of heart open, real connection that takes place. What's going on? They've got walls up and they live behind those walls because it's the only way they know how to feel safe. And so love is being hindered because of all of that. And so when you, when you put these walls up, and again, you got to see it like there's different levels, you know, I, I had like big walls up, you know, for a long, long time, and then it got better. And, you know, people that, that were raised with very loving fathers, you know, they don't struggle nearly so much with putting all of these walls up. They have, they have a much higher capacity to hold their heart open and be vulnerable in relationship. But still, even, even someone like that, it, it, there's going to be moments when they're fearful or insecure and, and they're going to try to put a bit of a wall up. And the thing about walls is they hinder real relationship from taking place. 
And that in turn causes conflict and pain in relationship, which in turn makes us want to put more walls up, right? And so this vicious cycle thing happens, and it's lonely. It's lonely to live behind these thick walls from around our hearts. And so I want to kind of give you two kind of primary ways. They're almost like categories of ways that we put walls up. And there's a bunch of spinoffs from these two categories. And that's dependence and dominance. When I'm insecure, when any of us are insecure, we will tend to live by either being overly dominant or overly dependent as opposed to kind of living in the middle, which would be, um, you know, brotherhood, you know, fellowship, one among many, we're, you know, give and take and we work together and we're all apart, right? But see, that requires vulnerability because I can get hurt in that place. And so I might gravitate to being dominant or dependent. So I remember very early on when I was here, I don't remember what year it was, but it was early, late 80s, and I had gone to this Christmas party of Christians, and I'm there, and I'm sitting at this Christmas party, and a couple of the, the men there were clearly like the popular guys. Like, like they were the ones telling jokes, and everybody was laughing. And you could see like, yeah, these guys are cool. You know, these, these guys are popular. And I can immediate, I immediately, I had this feeling, you know, come over me of like inferiority. And I'm like, I'm not funny like that, you know. And then sometimes I would try to be funny like that, but it didn't work. <laughs> you know, and, and it just, whatever I said, just like it did not get a laugh. And it was kind of awkward, <laughs> you know, and which added to the feelings of inferiority. <laughs> You know, and then I was like, well, fine. I don't care what anybody thinks. Yeah, right. You know, anytime you hear anyone says, I don't care what anybody thinks, you can know that that's the person who cares the most about what others think. There was that movie, um, The Family Stone. It's not a Christian movie, but it's a Christmas movie. And there's one, and there's this lady in the movie who's super awkward and intense and uptight. And um, she, she, turns to one of the people in the, in the family who seemed like very secure in who she was. And she says, well, I don't care what you think. And the, and the other girl looks back real calm with a cup of coffee. And, oh, yes, you do. <laughs> that was so perfect. And like, you know, that was it. You know, she was so fearful. But we do. We, we care. Um, and so we can have this victim thing. I can feel good about myself if I perceive that you like me and that you're accepting me. Or if I have a sense you're not accepting me and liking me, suddenly I don't feel good about myself. And I feel, you know, insecure and maybe rejection or shame or something like that. And there's, you know, many examples of this. But, but on, the, on the other side of the coin, it's kind of just two sides of the same coin, is, is dominance. You know, I went through this thing where I wanted to be like the smartest guy in the room, you know, especially when it would come to like Bible knowledge. In the very early, early years of, of our marriage, you know, Cindy would try to talk to me like, you know, relax. Uh, <laughs> but I would like a good sword fight. You know, the Bible is the sword of the word. Like, come on, let's, let's, go, let's go head to head with some scriptures, you know. Um, I remember this one time uh, I went to an impact group way back then early 90s, I guess, or late 80s. And one of the elders of Beach's Chapel at that time, he's no longer here, but 
he showed up that night at our impact group. And I felt a little bit intimidated because this guy's an elder, you know. And anybody with any kind of position of power and authority immediately made me feel intimidated. And he makes some kind of comment about this scripture that he was very passionate about. And I immediately disagreed. I immediately had a very different idea about that scripture from what this elder thought, you know, and I'm like, man, I'm going to, I'm going to say something. I can't let this stand. I've got to correct this, you know, this, 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 you know, I got to be right. (laughs) Because to be wrong in, in my broken thinking somehow equated with I'm wrong. You know, I would connect it to my identity and who I was in Christ. I remember when we first moved to the Dominican Republic, we were taking over from another missionary who who had started this church and everything. And so we were together about a month before he left. And so he got me kind of preaching right away. And so I was doing all the services each week. And every single week, I went for the minor prophets. Like I, I was going for the deepest, you know, like... Stuff that the, your average person is probably not sought out, you know. And each week I would bring, you know, these deep messages from obscure verses in the minor prophets, you know. And, and then at one point, I, I guess he kind of figured out what I was doing, even though it was borderline subconscious for me. I just, you know, I'm going to prove, man, I, I got this. I'm dominant, you know. And so at one point he looked at me and he goes, you, you clearly know the Bible better than me. All right, now you're getting it. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of sad, honestly, if you think about it, you know. Um, That's not, okay, we're talking about brotherhood, right? Just being one among many, working together for a common goal. Um, We're all loved, right? That was not a picture of that, right? That was more a picture of competition, one up, you know, who's the smartest, who's most anointed, <laughs> and so there's there's all these ways that we can put walls up, and it protects us from feeling vulnerable and from being hurt again. Like if say somebody is overly dependent, say somebody's codependent, has a victim mentality, it gives them a certain protection because if I fail, it's your fault. Because you're the one that's supposed to be helping me, rescuing me, you know, making this thing work out. So if it doesn't work out, okay, yeah, that's their fault. And I don't have to take that blame and I don't have to feel bad about myself, which I do most of the time because of my faulty identity, right? And so there's all these different ways that we can express this dominance or dependence. Um, being fault-finding all the time being sarcastic all the time. Those are walls. Those are ways I can kind of protect my heart. Make sense? Being critical all the time. Uh, Serving all the time. Did you know that constantly serving is a way to hide? And and sometimes, and and put a wall up. Not that serving's bad. No, don't say that in front of Pastor James. Being selfish and self-indulgent, that's a weird kind of way of, it's still putting a wall up, right? If I don't try, then I can't fail, which is kind of scary because in the way you already failed, but because you're not trying, (laughs) right? 
And so how do you heal this? How do you heal your identity in Christ? Like, so I'm giving you guys like all these little snapshots, but like this is years of my life, you know? I mean, even 15 years or so coming here every week, I still battled a lot of anxiety, uh, feelings of inferiority, um, sometimes panic attacks even when life got really intense. And so even back, at, like when I joined here in 1986, I had already started reading books on like Christian counseling and healing and, and stuff like this. Like it was a, a topic I was drawn to from day one. You know, it's still the primary area that, that our ministry focuses on, you know, all these years later, um, 30 years later or whatever. So I started reading all those books and, and, you know, like I said, like 15 years go by and there were still lots of battles, even though some things had gotten better. I definitely gotten more of a sense that, that God extends his grace to us and he's, you know, just not locked into judgment 24-7. And then we got involved with this ministry that teaches on the Father's love and, and that was huge. I mean, that was just you know, learning that, that Father God is, is love. You know, when, you, when you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. And you know what the Father is like, you know. That, that understanding His love just began healing, just years of living with anxiety and, and panic attacks and, and inferiority. Um, so I want to just consider for a couple of minutes God's nature of love and how that uh, determines our, our, our identity. So in Genesis 1.27, it says, God created man in his image, and the image of God he created them, male and female, uh, he created them. So God's image is love, and you are created in his image. Pretty basic, right? God's image is love. The Bible says God is love in one verse. It just comes out and says it. Um, And you're created in his image. So you're a love child. You're a child of God, created in His image. That's our foundation. That's, that's who we are if we can really believe it at a heart level. 1 John 4.16, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And He who abides in love abides in God and God in Him. Like this is a strong, strong verse in my opinion. Right? How do you walk in the Spirit? Walk in love. Right? How do you have a sense of God's presence dwelling within you? Walk in love. Right? How do you know if you're abiding in God and God's abiding in you if you live in His love? 1 John 4, 8, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That, that's an incredible verse to me. Like, I could preach the deepest mysteries of the minor prophets, you know, and have incredible prophecies over your lives. And, and when I pray for the sick, man, you've never seen such healings. And yet, if there's no love, I don't know him. Like, that's possible, right? I mean, 1 Corinthians 13 makes a big deal about that being possible, right? You can preach the deepest mysteries. You can give your body to be burned, but if your motives in those things aren't love, you know, it profits you nothing. And so, you know, kind of the key here is our, our experiences with our earthly fathers um, often affect how we relate to our heavenly father. Like I shared with you earlier, I didn't grow up in church and hear a bunch of sermons of what God's like. 
But based on my experiences with my earthly father, I just naturally figured, well, Father God must be something, you know, along these lines. You know, probably pretty impatient, doesn't put up with a lot of crap. You know, you better watch yourself. You might get backhanded. Creates a lot of fears and insecurities. And so we, we often put many of our feelings, if they're unresolved, toward our earthly fathers onto our heavenly fathers. So here's the thing. Everybody has a God concept, right? That's kind of where I started. But here's the other thing. Something formed it, right? It came from somewhere. Somewhere in your life as a little kid, you heard the word dada, you know, or, or father or dad, and, and, it, and it began, right? The, the, the formation of the concept began, right? And time went on and you had interactions with your father or even other people at school, on teams, other friends, dad, whatever, all these experiences are, are, are contributing to what your idea of fatherhood is, right? What a father is like, how a father reacts to people, and so forth. And so, the, the kind of the, a key first step for me was learning about the father's love and, and, you know, learning what he's really like, as I've shared. Step two was kind of looking back at these experiences that formed my God concept, and experiences that you know, often I viewed as shameful rather than based in God's love. And so I was thinking about this, and I had this memory, excuse me, I was, um, gosh, I'm trying to remember how old I was, 11 or 12, somewhere in there, and we were living in these apartments in Jacksonville, and one day I happened to look inside the glove box of my dad's car, and I saw a bag of drugs in there. And I was shocked that that was the first time that I had any idea my dad was involved with drugs in any kind of a way. I didn't know that. It was a secret, right? And, and it was, you know, wow, what, look at this. My dad? Like, these are drugs. Like, I didn't know a lot. I didn't, you know, but I knew those were drugs. I could tell. <laughs> I'm like, okay, dad's into drugs. I mean, I already knew he drank, you know, and got angry and stuff like that, but I didn't know he was into drugs. Like, that's illegal. <laughs> so anyway, around that same time, my dad had this guy that worked for him who was a big guy, kind of tall, over six foot, just a you know, big guy, but everyone called him tiny, which was kind of hysterical, and which was also kind of like you see in the movies, like these mafia guys have these really ridiculous names. I mean, it was really kind of like that. It was, it was weird. And they called him Tiny. So Tiny worked for my dad and ran errands for him and did things for him and this kind of stuff. And so a little while later, we had these dirt bikes. And we were out riding our dirt bikes on the streets in our neighborhood. And some of the neighbors got angry and called the police because we're out on the streets making a lot of noise rather than back in the woods, you know. And somehow I got wind that someone had called the police and I might get in trouble. So I was worried about that. So I rode my bike home as quick as I could and put it in the back of the garage. And I was going to get out of there, you know, before the police came and talk to my parents. And so right as I was hiding my motorcycle in the garage, I saw Tiny leaving in the car to run an errand for my dad. So I ran over and said, hey, can I go with you? And he's like, sure, jump in. So I did. And so we drove across town and we went to a head shop. And he made me stay in the car, but he bought some stuff in the head shop. I guessed that, you know, something to do with drugs that my dad needed. Bought all of that, drove all the way back home uh, here to the beach. 
And we pulled up and we go walking in the house. And, and the minute we walked in, just boom, my dad cold cocked him and knocked him out. And I'm standing there, you know, I'm a kid, like 14. Dang, I didn't see that coming. And my dad's secret had been exposed, right? He was trying to keep all these things secret. And here Tiny takes me to a head shop, you know, and, and he didn't, you know, he didn't like that. And just out of nowhere, just knocked him out. Uh, this is kind of stuff that fathers can do. Like, this is nuts, you know? And there were all these secrets. I often didn't know where my dad, how my dad made money. There was a time later where he came home one night and just laid out thousands and thousands of dollars across the, the kitchen counter from some drug deal that he had done. And then I found out that he was selling some fake drugs to people for lots of money. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still a kid, but I'm thinking, like, this is not good. Like, like this isn't safe. You know, you rip off these kinds of people, uh, it's, it's not safe. Right? It's not safe for my dad. It's not safe for the family. Like, bad idea. And so, I don't know if you can imagine growing up in an environment like that. A few of you probably can. It was crazy. It was secretive. It was, you, you never knew when something crazy was going to happen or explode, like Tiny getting knocked out. Like, it was just, you know, a crazy thing. I remember when I was, uh, gosh, I was like 19 or 20 or something like that. And I was hanging around this bar at the beach. And this guy from where the neighborhood I grew up in was kind of a shady guy. You know, and I hadn't seen him and I ran into him. And he said, uh, did you know your dad has taken out a contract on a guy to have him killed? And I'm like, what? And, and I knew the guy. I knew who he was talking about. I knew the guy that, that my dad was angry with. And that was just crazy on so many levels. Number one, like, I definitely don't want to be a friend with this guy because who's the kind of person that hears about uh, available contracts? Right? Like, I've never heard, no one's ever told me, hey, there's a contract if you want it, you know, to take this guy out, right? Um, and two, my dad, you know, was the guy that put the contract out. Like, what? You know, what's happening right now? So what did all of these experiences teach me, you know, growing up? What was kind of being communicated, you could even say maybe subconsciously to me, about what fathers are like? Danger. Danger. Like, unknown. You know, my dad's a lawbreaker. He's willing to cross boundaries that normal people don't cross. And that's scary, right? It's dangerous. And you, you need to be careful. And, uh, you know, growing up in this kind of environment doesn't, like, prepare you for success in life. I don't know if you can see that or not. But, um, you know, it makes you think that people in general have secrets and they're dangerous. And so be guarded, Right? Don't trust anybody. But how do you grow? And how, do, how do you mature emotionally? How do you grow into what God has for you if everybody is dangerous? And you can't ever open your heart in relationship and you just live, excuse me, with these big walls around your heart. Right? You don't learn to be on a team or work in community or, or accomplish a project together. Everybody's dangerous and you keep a wall up and you stay guarded all the time. That's what I did for all those years, even many years after coming here and, and joining the church here. 
you know? And that can be on many levels. If I'm too open of this person, they might reject me. Better to stay quiet, mind my own business, you know, kind of say hi and move on, you know? And just kind of live with those walls because people are dangerous. So everybody has a story, right? Hopefully a lot of your stories are not like mine. I would imagine there's a few people that could probably tell a story worse than mine. But, you know, we all have our stories of our interactions with our Father, and, and they affect our God concept and, and who we believe God is. And so here, here's a key for, for anybody. No matter how much your earthly father provided for your physical needs, no matter how much your earthly father provided for your physical needs, if you didn't feel safe and loved in his presence, it can you know, give you problems with your God concept, right? Um, Cindy had a father better than most, as far as I know, you know, from having counseled many, many people and done Father's Love conferences for many, many years. Um, she tells stories where her dad, her dad was a uh, civil engineer, and he'd be working on blueprints in the evening when he came home from work, and she could go up and just interrupt him and say, hey, what are you doing? And, you know, what's that line right there mean? You know, and he would patiently just explain, oh, well, we put that line because of this. And, you know, like he would never, hey, I'm working here. Like he didn't, he was so patient and, you know, just kind. And she felt safe in his presence, right? And that, that needs to be true for all of us. If it didn't happen with our earthly parents, the Heavenly Father wants it to happen with him and within the, the church, like, like James talks about in the mission statement, home, right? This is home. This is a place where we should feel safe and, and loved and encouraged, where, where this kind of healing can take place on the inside of us. The concept you have of God determines if you can receive from Him love, a sense of security and feeling safe, which there's no way you're going to open up your heart if you don't. Uh, a sense of rest, a sense of provision. All of this gets tied into what we believe about God's nature and, and who we believe that He is. Uh, Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Right? And, and, and so as, as my heart becomes purified toward who God is, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see him and I'm going to grow in my relationship with him and, and healing is going to occur as the result of that. Seeing who the Father truly is clarifies our own identity. Um, then the third step that I took, I forgave my dad and other people for modeling to me a wrong concept of who God is. Right? Um, a lot of these people, you know, had no idea. They were doing the best they could in life, right? They were trying to find their way forward like anybody else. But to me, you know, it modeled a wrong idea about who God is. And so I just, you know, forgave that in Jesus' name. As your concept of God is healed, your identity is healed. It's the father who parts, ident imparts identity to uh, a daughter or a son, Make sense? And so just to review the steps, learning about God as a loving father, learning what his nature is, is really like, um, re-examining you know, past events that, that gave us a wrong idea of who the father is, 
forgiving people that modeled for us a wrong idea about what the Father is like, um, looking back at events that we may have interpreted as you know, shame and, and rejection and realizing that's not true. The Father loved me in whatever event, in, in my most shameful moment, and the worst thing that I ever did. It didn't catch God by surprise, right? And his heart remained open to me. And he's not going to just leave me or reject me because I made a mistake. That's, that's the truth. The, the, the lie is I'm, I'm flawed. There's something wrong with me. I've been abandoned. God, God, you know, had to step away from me. And I was alone when that super painful thing occurred. All of those are lies. The father is not insecure, right? He's a loving father. There's nothing we can do that kind of shakes him up and go, wow, that behavior. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, he has a capacity to hold his heart open at all times. He, he's, a, he's a loving father and he never leaves us and he never forsakes us. And so I can look back at these, these events in my life that were painful and I can know father was there. It was actually God who got me through that, and I'm here today, and I'm on the other side of that thing, and I'm growing, and I'm healing, and it's getting better. He wasn't ashamed of me in that moment. His heart broke for me in that moment because he loves me so much. He loves you so much. You know, that, that's the truth. That the, you know, in, in certain events that we've gone through that have been very painful, it, you know, the enemy tells us, yeah, God just abandoned you in that moment. He didn't protect you. You know, those, those are the lies of the enemy where God wants to speak to our hearts and say, look, that's not true. You know, I've always loved you and I've always been with you and there isn't anything wrong with you. Um, we were hurt, you know, hurt people, living life with other hurt people, trying to find their way forward and work God's love out in their hearts and in their lives, right? Much better perspective. You know, I hear people say, I don't want to look back at these events and try to determine what my beliefs are about God and about myself. But here's the thing, you already have. You're living by some God concept that you have and that's affecting your identity. So you might as well try to line it up better with God's word, right? And his love. Um, step three, forgiving those um, that modeled a wrong uh, concept of who God is. And then four, this final step that I've kind of mentioned already, living in community, working together with other people. You know, when, when we got involved with this Father's Love ministry, it wasn't that just that we began learning about the Father's love. We worked with a whole team of people all ministering in that area, and we ministered together with them. And that was huge. It was especially huge because I was learning how to hold my heart open even when things don't go my way or, you know, people do things I don't like. I, I, I stayed on the team, you know, and I forgave if I needed to forgive or ask forgiveness if I needed to. Because if you're on a, if you're working with a group of people, you're going to get your feelings hurt sometimes, right? It's just part of the deal, you know, everybody has hurts at some level. But when we can hold our hearts open and we can forgive, this incredible growth takes place. You know, there's, there's a friend of mine who has a saying that I love. He said, it's in relationships that you were hurt, and it's in relationships that you'll be healed. Just a huge, huge statement, right? That 
as I begin to know that I'm loved and believe that God loves me at a heart level and I, and I work together with a group and then iron sharpens iron, you know, all this growth begins to take place and we begin to feel comfortable in our own skin. And we begin to feel like, yeah, I am a child of God and He does love me and there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I can tell you today that I am comfortable in my own skin and that I don't battle condemnation. I, I almost never, you know, I'm not claiming perfection by any means, but condemnation is not typically a problem that I have. I know that God loves me even when I make mistakes and I'm in a growth process that's not complete. In some area of my life, condemnation is not the answer, it's a dead end street. Um, I don't battle inferiority anymore. And I mean, 15 to 20 years in the church every week, I battled that. And it'd be hard to be around a group of people. It would be particularly hard if I viewed certain people as important people or, you know, having important positions. I would particularly feel intimidated and, and inferior in those kind of situations. And, you know, working with this ministry and the Father's love, like we're praying over pastors, you know, all over the world. Uh, one time I was praying for this pastor who was just weeping in my arms, forgiving his dad. I mean, just loud, crying like a little baby in my arms. And he was like over 200 different churches or something like that. I'm like, holy cow. You know, if you, if you don't have your inferiority and intimidation healed, you can't minister to people. Like, all right, it gets in the way at least, you know. And it's, I got to say that it's wonderful. Can we have the worship team come back up? It's wonderful to be healed of that. It's, it's wonderful to be able to be around a group of people and, and just be comfortable in my own skin, be comfortable in who I am and in my identity. You know, God wants that for all of us. You know, a place of rest, a place of feeling safe, a place of feeling accepted, a place of, you know, if I say something awkward and I put my foot in my mouth and maybe even someone gives me a kind of a sideways look, I'm okay. I've made a mistake. Doesn't define who I am. I'm still loved, right? We want to pray the Father's love over you this morning. We just want to pray into you your identity in Christ. So we want to ask the elders and, uh, and their wives and pastors to come forward. And we want to just invite you forward. Um, and we just want to speak the truth of God's love over you and speak the truth of your identity in Christ over you. And so as we finish up this morning, I just invite you to stand and come forward for prayer. Thank you, Father. God, I thank you for speaking to every one of our hearts the incredible value that we have in your sight. That we are the head and not the tail, that we're above and not beneath. God, I thank you that you're not put out with anybody here this morning. You're not disappointed with anybody here this morning love us and you're 
for us. It says in your word that you will finish the work that you began in us, that you haven't given up on us, that you're with us, 